Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on light. I recently spoke with two light team members about their personal and professional journeys. First up was Caitlin Flood, light's office and community manager, whose role in keeping the light family connected has taken on new importance in the COVID era. I also spoke with John Carr, a visual designer at light who's been in and around the music business in multiple ways his entire life. I think you're going to find them both interesting people who have been up to interesting things. So have a listen and enjoy. How are you today? How are you holding up? Doing good. It was one of those mornings of like, is it Tuesday or Wednesday? So, <laughs> What day is it? Tuesday. Okay, thank you. Because <laughs> I wasn't sure either. The, the only thing that uh, has really tethered me to day of the week um, is a lot of these conversations because I see them drop into the calendar and I'm like, okay, I know a day before I have to prepare a little bit. And yep. um, that helps me keep some kind of uh, syncopation to it. But yeah, most of the other things in life that have been guideposts um, for time have all slipped, whether it's standing meetings or even like outside activities um, because things are canceled or shifted online. It's like, it's really bizarre. It's wild. I mean, even just being able to connect with people at random hours now because you're just able to, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Outside of your work life, um, what's, what's been the biggest impact for you? Live events. Yeah. I didn't realize how much live events probably in the past three or four years has played a pretty intricate part of my personal like free time. Yeah. How often were you going out? Probably at least one show a week, I would say, depending yeah. on the venue or the artist. But yeah, just having that assurance that it's there. Yeah, that's definitely been the biggest hit. Yeah, I, I've, I have a conversation or I've had a conversation a lot over the years with friends where it starts by saying, what, what tickets are you holding on to right now? Or what do you have coming up? And like that, it's just it's just a given that um, there's some concert that is happening either within days or weeks. Exactly. Are you holding tickets to anything that's uh, up in the air right now? I had been. I had um, a couple of shows in Atlanta and a couple of shows here in San Francisco in the month of March. And then after March, I was just like, okay, let's just not buy anything for a little bit. Why Atlanta? Um, it was honestly, it was one of my favorite DJs, Excision, and the dates oh, yeah. that here in San Francisco, I was going to be at a wedding. So my friend in Atlanta was like, dude, flights are cheap. Come on out. That's hysterical. So Why I think not? Played the concert that you told me in a meeting that I was allowed to be upset about because I was a little bummed out that it was about to get canceled. And you were like, you're allowed to be sad right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good reason to be upset. Um, if it's something that you could be that excited about, it's something that you can be upset about. Yeah, if you're going to fly four plus hours for on a red eye. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How and why Bay Area? So I think we've already bonded on the fact that we're both from New England. And I was just that kid growing up that without visiting out here, just like seeing movies or TV and documentaries, I just knew I was drawn to this area. 
and then spent a good amount of my 20s coming out here to visit and couch surf off of friends that lived here to make sure that I did like it and then had a really amazing opportunity about two years ago to move out here and so finally made it happen. All right, let me jump back then to the beginning. Um, you mentioned New England. Uh, where exactly were you? The Massachusetts. Um, it's the town right next to where the New England Patriots play. And uh, you were there from childhood on? From childhood on, yep. I left just to go into the city for undergrad, so did not leave far for a while. And did you live in Boston or did you commute? I lived in Boston. I was in Boston from 19 to 25. Tell me about Boston. I have, you know, I grew up outside of New Haven, but um, that was like right on the dividing line. So some people gravitated towards Boston from like a sports team point of view or even like a, a, a mental mindset point of view. And some people gravitated towards New York. And um, so, you know, I'm a Yankees fan who lived in New York for 20 years. So I have a very preconceived set of <laughs> biases about Boston. But what was your experience? <laughs> well, I'm sure some of them are true. I mean, I do hold on to the term asshole dearly. <laughs> I don't <laughs> insult at all. But for me, I, I have a big love affair with Boston where I just, when it comes down to the heart of that city and the sports especially, you can't beat it. I was really fortunate where I went to school at Northeastern, so I lived in Back Bay and then went on to work for the South Boston Boys and Girls Club. So it just very much felt like, you know, the departed in some way, shape, or form because they were opening <laughs> it right down the street from where the club was. Um, so that was an interesting time because I feel like that's when a big spotlight was kind of starting to shine on Boston with films being filmed there a lot and just kind of being the talk of town. Yeah, I, I don't think that um, people realize exactly um, what a big city it is. It's not talked about as much in terms of what's going on there, whether it's, you know, academics, tech. Um, I think people not from the region have a very um, a narrow view of what Boston is. Yeah. Um, it is an interesting town. It's funny that you, that you mentioned mass holes because my first, the first time I realized what a mass hole was, was I was driving on the highway up there during rush hour. And there's this strange phenomenon where all of a sudden, it might be a two or three lane road, but then the shoulders somehow become permitted, permissible for people to drive on. And there seems to be no speed limit either on the shoulder of the road when you're driving on it. And that's when it all fell into place for me. And I said, oh, that's, that's a mass hole right there. <laughs> that's a mass hole move. Yeah, I, I, I wound up spending a lot of time there because some of, the, um, some of the tours I worked on actually kicked off in Boston over the years. So there'd be a week or two before the tour where there'd be production rehearsals and, and basically just a convergence of everybody um, would be in town for a week or 10 days. And so I, I got to spend a lot of time up there. But, um, you know, being someone who orients towards New York, it kind of reminds me of Philadelphia in that it's clearly a city, but it feels kind of small. Absolutely. I've been to Philadelphia a couple of times and every single time I've gone, that comment always comes out of my mouth. It feels like home in a way. Were you, a, uh, were you a sports person in Boston? Yeah. So actually my first paying job like on the books was I did parking for the New England Patriots. So if you're 
smart about it. You ignore whatever parking lot you actually get assigned to and you go to like the VIP parking lots because they have the best tailgating food and you would just like try to make nice with the fans in the parking lots before the games. And then, um, so I did that and then grew up also being like the person who wiped the sweat off the courts for the Boston College basketball teams because my aunt worked there and I was a big basketball player growing up. So it was a huge part of life there. Sweat remover, is that actually a, a job? Is that a... <laughs> definitely, I, I think it was ball girl, but essentially... <laughs> you're oh, so that's the code. That's the code. <laughs> yeah. My, uh, my first professional football game was, uh, was at the old uh, Sullivan Stadium in Foxborough. Oh, wow. Okay. So was that, because I grew up with that as Foxborough Stadium. Was it the big old yeah. seat? Yeah. yeah. That was and nice. It was basically the last seat way up in the back corner. Like there was like a rumor of a football game somewhere like a half a mile away down in the field. Um, yep. But that, that stadium's near and dear to me um, because it's where I first saw the Rolling Stones. Um, many I first saw ago. the Rolling Stones. What's that? That's where I first saw the Rolling Stones. Oh, amazing. Like in the new stadium. At in Boston, the new one. Same spot, but yeah. That's where I what, uh, do you remember what year that was? Yep, it was, I want to say 2006, maybe 2005. I remember I was either a junior or senior in high school. Gotcha. Um, I was probably there. Um, and uh, I also spent... Uh, more than one night uh, camping in the parking lot there um, because I used to go see the Grateful Dead there all the time as well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, actually, they, they used to get some great, great uh, concerts at that that stadium. But anyway, um, so you leave Boston, and then where did you go? Was there an interval between Boston and San Francisco? Yeah, I did Washington, D.C. for about four years. Why? random blip. Um, I had my last year with the Boys and Girls Club, I was just like kind of reevaluating some stuff. And in all honesty, I followed a relationship and moved down to Washington, D.C., but it ended up being the best thing because it made everything else afterwards just kind of fall into place from there. Mm -hmm. What's it like living in D.C.? It's not, I, I feel like I don't talk to a lot of people that spend time there. It's Interesting. I mean, for me, I was working in Bethesda, Maryland for SoulCycle. So I was just in a very family-based community, but you're definitely surrounded by that, you know, go, go, go mentality. Everyone kind of, for me, the circles that I was running in, it just seemed like everyone was very politics oriented and kind of wanted to know your bottom line in conversations pretty quickly, which... Oh, interesting. Yeah, I just found that to be, that was one of the things I didn't care for as much, unfortunately. What was there in terms of uh, live music and nightlife? Ooh, yep. So my favorite venues are in D.C. Um, so you have the Anthem, which is the newest one there, which is just like beautiful. And that's where I was lucky enough to see Beck and Florence and the Machine and a couple other acts. And then my real favorite one, though, is Echo Stage, which uh, I have a call them the festival family and we were there probably three or four nights a week back That's in the amazing. day yeah <laughs> what, did you, what did you see there what's a peak experience that you remember Ooh, um first time seeing excision there so echo stage is pretty edm heavy so mm -hmm. lots so, of DJ. <laughs> talk to me a little bit about your affinity for that music and that culture like how do you how does a, a 
kid from, I guess, the south part of Massachusetts make their way to Boston and find out about that scene? Yeah, so I mean, the EDM scenes for me didn't really happen until Washington, D.C. Um, I myself just kind of, I was newly single and just finding myself going out a lot more. And the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, that how every story starts like that. And I found myself with a really great group of friends who our common denominator was that we are obsessed with live music. And so no matter what type of week it was or day it was, we were always finding ourselves going to shows and just basically cohabitating with each other for about like six months where shows were basically our life. So. Yeah. What did you grow up uh, listening to? Growing up, it's a big variation. Um, I would have to say it's a mixture of Fleetwood Mac, NWA, Bob Seger, the Beatles. I was really influenced by both my parents and my brother who's seven years older than me. So he kind uh. of, he gave me an early education on a lot of things. And then I veered my own way into the pop world <laughs> when that hit <laughs> around eight years old. Yeah. So you grew up with music in the house? Yeah. Yeah. My mom, still don't forgive her for this, but she sold her rec player. But that record player was the go-to in the living room going up. So. That's great. And it just uh, you and a brother? Just me and brother. Um, we do have stepsisters now, but growing up, yeah, primarily my brother and I. Yeah. Okay. So you make your way to DC, um, Boys and Girls Club. What were you doing there? And I, I, was that a was that an outgrowth of um, what you studied in college? Like, what's take me through that um, transition? Yeah, a little bit. So with Northeastern, one of the amazing things about their program is you can do the co-op program and you work for six months full time and you're not in classes and then you go back to a semester of classes. So my last co-op program was with the Boys and Girls Club and they took me on full time after I graduated. So I was their preteen specialist, which was somewhat of a new position for them still. It's for 11 and 12 year olds because that's the dropout rate that they find where kids would stop going after school. So they were thinking that if they had a dedicated person for that age group, that could help just keep kids, you know, engaged and want to keep coming to the club. So that's the age where kids typically age out of Boys and Girls Club, or is that where it starts? Tell, tell, what's, what, what, what's the population that it serves? Yeah, so for us, we had five-year-olds five to 18-year-olds. Um, so the kids do age out after they turn 18. Um, but what they were finding is that kids 11 and 12, that's, you know, that's when the hormones are starting to kick in and they might be allowed to have more free time. And that's when they just start to get a little bit more in trouble. So they were just hoping by having a dedicated preteen lounge that coordinates with the teen lounge, it kind of makes the kids, you know, get added responsibility and think they're kind of in that realm with the teenagers. So it tends to keep them longer in a good way. Yeah, that's a that's a tough year for kids to navigate because they're kind of done with childish things and they think they're ready for adult things, but they're not. Or they think they're supposed to be ready for adult things, but they're scared. And uh, that, that's a really difficult time. Exactly. And that was probably my most difficult years for myself personally. And I was still young enough when I did that job to like fully be in that and like remember that emotional state. So it's a good, it's a great job for anyone who's fresh out of college to do for a couple of years. Yeah. You, you don't have quite so much distance on it that you can't go back there. Exactly. And then that last year, that's when I was like, oh snap, <laughs> we're starting to outgrow it a little bit. 
So yeah, I mean, it was it was decades and decades ago for me, and I could still give myself the shivers if I if I sit here and put myself back in the place. Um, it's amazing how uh, how um, yeah how recent it all seems and how fresh some of the experiences still feel. Oh yeah, and it's wild too because that first um, class of kids they're now applying for college this year and going in the fall. So that's just wild to think that it's already been yeah. that long. And what do um what do what does the boys and girls club do for and with kids? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing is to just give them an outlet in their life that they didn't have beforehand. So it's not that we really wanted to go in and shake things up. It's just that if you needed a safe space to come and do your homework and have help with something that you're going through and have, you know, extracurricular activities that you could engage with, whether it be, we had woodworking, I ran a boys club at one point, um, dance classes, just giving kids more options so that, you know, they don't find themselves having all the free time in the world after school to get into trouble. How do they get there from school? A lot of the kids would get there on their on their own. They would either walk or take the buses, public transportation. Some had parents drop them off. Just depends. So, to a large extent, they're kids that they they want to be there, or they're they're making some effort to go. Yeah, yeah, we definitely had kids who would show up, even like on weeks that we were closed. But like internally, we would have to be working. We would still have kids who would show up, and just it, yeah, it like wasn't an option for them to not come. So. It was just like an extended family in that sense. Yeah. So um, when you were in D.C., uh, you were still with the organization? So I left the organization in Boston. And when I went down to D.C., I was nannying full time. And then that's when I found SoulCycle and opened uh, their first Maryland studio. Oh, gotcha. What, what, if any, common theme exists between Boys and Girls Club nannying and SoulCycle other than you? You're the common thread, but what, what's the common thread for you? People. I just, I really love working with people and I just, I love fostering some form of community, um, whether that's small and a, you know, for nannying, for example, that was just for one family um, and help them. They brought a couple of kids into this world with my time with them. Um, so that was mm. to see and witness and then cut to soul cycle where I opened four studios about and just you know being able to meet tons of people it's just yeah people <laughs> were you instructing or administering or administrate definitely not instructing um leave that to the professionals i was managing so i did both a mix of i was assistant manager of operations and assistant manager of marketing at one point so how you got to san francisco in terms of career yes Yep, I was able to transfer from D.C. to the Castro studio here up the block, which was pretty special because the Castro studio is pretty well known as like a special studio amongst the company. Gotcha. Where did SoulCycle start? New York City. Oh, really? Yeah. How old is the company? They just turned 14. Wow, I didn't realize it. It feels like such a new phenomenon. All right, so you come to San Francisco. Where did you settle? Settled um, in Castro Dubose Triangle. Wow. Very, yeah. It's a very, very special area. I lucked out where I live below my godson's grandmother. So godson's I'm in her. Grandmother. 
<laughs> trying to chart yeah. that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's the one who basically made the move possible for me. Well, and how long ago was that? So, uh, August 2018, so almost two years ago. Oh, okay, so you're still sort of uh, you're still sort of fresh to the whole thing. Yeah. Yep. I'm still like still exploring, you know, neighborhoods for the first time and outside towns. And so um, the majority of your time, you were you were still at Soul Cycle for a solid year and a half. Just about a year. Yeah. 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 And talk to me about getting to know the Bay Area. You said you get to explore and you get to check things out. Like what you hit the ground, you get settled in and like what does it mean to you to be there and what have you been doing and like, what do you check out? Um, I'm a big walker. So just walking around and I just love how every neighborhood is different and has its own unique personality. Like that's something that I hope I never get sick of. And it's something, especially during this shelter in place time too, right now, like just to have a new found love for it. But I would just walk around um, and explore all the new neighborhoods and I would hang out with my godson as well, um, who was an infant at that time. So would just like strap him to my chest and just, we would explore together. So it was fun to have it be explored through his eyes for the first time while also my own. Yeah, are you, um, are you getting out during this time? Like what's your, what's your experience with the shelter in place thing? Yeah, it's definitely been interesting. I try to go on walks every now and then, and I've been working out outside a little bit more. Um, there's a couple like hidden staircases near my spot that's really nice to escape away from. Um, but it's definitely been tough to motivate because like motivation can be a little hard right now. And then also like I have guilt when I go outside too now at this point because we've been doing this for so long. <laughs> so... Do you, uh, do you wear a mask? I do. Yep. Yeah. What's your thinking behind that? Are you doing it from a personal health point of view or are you doing it as like a courtesy thing for other scared people? Like, how do you think about the need to wear a mask? In all honesty, it's a courtesy to others. Like my concern is more like not knowing that I have something and passing it on to someone else. Um, I think also when I first moved out here, it was during one of the, of fires going on so I just like was wearing a mask pretty regularly when I first moved here so it oddly doesn't feel that different for me because this is probably the third long period of time that I've had to wear a mask living here um, definitely the longest and the scariest right now but yeah I noticed that the other day yeah. oh that's interesting I hadn't thought about that yeah there's been since I moved to Seattle my first two summers here were both pretty bad with fires on um, up in the mountains. And we had my first summer here, we had what seemed like a solid week, if not more of like, um, like it was dark because of the smoke and, uh, you'd open the Apple app, the weather app, and you know, it would say sunny or rainy and it would say smoke. (laughs) I've never seen that before coming from the East coast. Um, it's a crazy phenomenon that people just like sort of live with that. It's wild. Yeah, there's an app that I have now that it would tell you the equivalent of cigarettes that you would smoke in a day based on their Yeah, it would get gnarly depressing really quick. (laughs) So Wow. What's the worst number you remember? Ooh. Like dozens or or a few? Oh yeah. I think like I wanna say in the seventies at one point one day. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
So that is brutal. Yeah. That's when like you would get like a headache just walking outside for like five minutes. If that, yeah. Yeah. I went to, uh, I went to Beijing once, um, she's almost 20 years ago now. And, um, that's kind of how the, the air was there. It was so dirty with smog that you'd go outside and like your face would hurt and your eyes would tear. Um, not all day, every day, but big chunks of the day. Yeah. And by the end of the day, you were kind of like, you were just sooty, you know, yeah. you're just dirty from being out there. And the crazy thing is there's people like, you know, it's still a pedestrian city. There's people riding bicycles and the, you know, the big sort of swarms of bicycle riders, like, you know, people, they adjust to their normal. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think what we're trying to do. (laughs) Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what the community role meant before mid-March and what it's meant since then? That's an amazing question. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think one of the hardest things before March is it's hard to have a community position and be new to a company um, because for me, I really want to take the time to get to know people and make sure that, you know, anything that's going on internally, it's to help and foster the growth of that team. Um, So that was definitely hard. And I think just kind of, you know, just being new and second guessing yourself. And now more than ever, I've never felt more connected to the people that we work with. And I just feel so responsible and honored to have this role right now because I just feel it's so important for us to be to connect it to be connected and to have things going on that are just going to keep things positive and going for the team. And um, what are some of the things that you've been doing with the company to um, get that result? Yeah. So one of the things that's pretty new recently, we started a few weeks ago, but. We'd been talking about it for months, wanting to do it in person as we just started listening circles. So essentially that's where people are just, as of right now, virtually logging on um, and they're just given a safe space to empty anything that's in their bucket that day, whether it be positive, negative, personal, non-personal, and just give everyone that space. And that's been really eye-opening. I think it's been really eye-opening to see that, you know, a lot of the things that an individual feels and feels like they might be alone on, we're all actually feeling it. Um, And that's really beautiful. And then on top of that, just trying to have more fun activities for individuals. So we're doing our light and sip happy hours on Friday nights. And usually there's themes to those. We did our first virtual art gallery hosted by you the other night, which was amazing. And other things like lunch sessions, afternoon hangouts. We have a fitness class on Thursday nights that we do, which is pretty hysterical. <laughs> if you ever want to log on just to laugh at me, go right ahead. Yeah. So <laughs> things like the lunch sessions or the happy hour sessions, like what form do they take? Like what happens? Yeah. So the lunch, the lunch sessions are definitely just like open-ended. It's just a, at this point, it's a pretty consistent group that logs on and we're just talking about our days. So it's usually whatever someone binged on Netflix the night prior. Um, we have our first light baby that will be born soon. So we're usually asking mama, uh, Anastasia how she's feeling that day and she's given us baby updates. But yeah, it's usually just a hangout session. Whereas the Happy hours usually have more of a theme going into them. So recently we've done trivia night 
that Jeremy co-hosted and that had some planning or we did the surprise virtual concert, which was really special. So some take more planning than others, for sure. I guess the good news is nobody has to uh, get behind the wheel of a car. Right? You know, you can just assure that everyone's safe in their homes. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there something every day or is that, was that a goal or an aspiration to have some kind of event every day? Wasn't a goal to have something every day at first, just because I didn't know what this was going to be like. I didn't know, you know, if people would want to have extra things going on or if it was something that we just needed to unplug more. But as the weeks went on, it seemed like it got into a natural rhythm and flow that it was something that I wanted to do. And it also just seemed like a need from the team as well. Yeah. When, um, what need do you think it's addressing? I think just connection right now. I think, you know, a lot of us are so used to getting fulfilled in a day by, you know, bouncing around from meetings to meetings and, you know, building to building and having that interaction and stopping by after work for dinner at a friend's house and just having those different layers of connection. And I think when that's taken away from you, it's hard to not kind of spiral mentally on that, at least for myself sometimes. Um, so I find that the more that I'm talking with people, the more I'm interacting virtually, it's helped for myself in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. And is it primarily the San Francisco office or are you seeing that the folks who worked remote, um, who were maybe more used to being a bit more on their own or, or even isolated, um, are, are they participating and what's it, what's it doing for the sense of like sort of inter-office connection? Yeah, um, they're definitely participating. And it's one of those things where I look back and I'm like, how was I not doing this prior to this? <laughs> you know, I wasn't every huddle virtual to let anyone join in on. Um, so it's been really great to A, get to know them better. And I think it's just put everyone at an even playing field where we're all remote at this point. Um, so it's made me excited of what's to come going forward as well because i just think from here on out that connection and relationship is just getting stronger and stronger so you foresee some of these things assuming we ever get to go back to an office <laughs> you right? foresee some of these things carrying through yeah absolutely yep yeah. i've already what think about how I would operate certain events, whether it be in a conference room or out in the common areas. Did you have plans that were disrupted by the, um, by the work from home scenario? Yeah, a couple of plans, especially for more of our community events. Um, we were going to do an office tour and Q&A session with the interns from the CCP education program at UC Theater. Um, so that was one of the big events that we've had to unfortunately but um, yeah a couple of things that just had to rework and let go because yeah reality now <laughs> and uh, has anybody been to the office yes I have been to the office um, a couple times yeah is it full of cobwebs <laughs> it's so it's so sad too because we'd only been in that office for like two months yeah. <laughs> um, in total before this all happened um yeah it's more the neighborhood that's pretty shocking to me because soma is a pretty nine to five area so for how quiet and eerie it is in that area right now it's pretty wild do we know anything about um the impact on the neighborhood in terms of um, 
the little local businesses we'd all go to or the places we'd go to eat? Like, is the, um, is anything open or is it so business based that there's just crickets, you know, what, like what's happening in our vicinity? Yeah, I know that there's a couple restaurants and food spots that I've been getting the emails from. So I'm like, okay, good. You guys are still open right now. Um, but for the most part, it seems like a lot of things are closed. They're like Market Street. Majority of those businesses are boarded up, unfortunately. Literally boarded up? Literally boarded up. Like I know our landlord's store got broken into like the other week. Um so they've literally had to board pretty much everything up to avoid that. For whatever reason, um, I, I find seeing that very jarring. It's, it's one thing, it's, it's one feeling to see everything closed on an otherwise busy day. But it's another thing to be sort of in an urban area and to see everything boarded up. Um, it just feels so strange and not right and scary. It's pretty eerie. I will say the silver lining of it is some businesses definitely use it as an opportunity for like a beautiful mural or like messaging yeah. if they, you know, if they have the funding to do that. Um, so that's been nice to see how they can communicate their messages in that way. But yeah, in, in the grand scheme of things, though, it's pretty, I would, pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. It also bums me out when it's a place that, um, that I have like some affinity for, like it, it's, it, it, I've noted, I've observed in myself a difference between driving by a place, seeing it boarded up, kind of taking note of it and being uneasy versus like driving by the record stores I would go to, or actually there was an ice cream place in my old neighborhood. That was the first place I saw closed and boarded up. And um, I don't know, there's just something so, disturbing about it that makes it made me sort of worry about the small business owner and then it made me think about like their landlord and um it's just such a stark um image you know of like this is not normal and there are real people somebody had to decide to board up their business and to just kind of i think i think that's what it, it felt like um it felt like a giving up and uh, not in a judgmental way, but it's like they just knew one day that they couldn't be in business for a while and they had to, they had to board up. So it's heavy. It's heavy, too, because I think with a small business, you know, if it's a small business that you're frequenting a lot, nine times out of ten, you know that family. Like, you know every person that works there. And it just, yeah, so you just think about, well, what are they doing? Are they okay? And especially if they're a small business that's not very active online. So definitely just like wondering what's going on with them. Yeah. Yeah. Has there been anything that we've done um, either as sort of informally as groups of employees or um, as light that we've done um, to sort of you know, maintain our community, foster our community, um, to leverage sort of our very lucky position, which is right now we're all still here and our business is thriving. When we know there's lots of other folks that are suffering or facing not pleasant things, like what, what have we done as an organization? Yeah, absolutely. So I think like one of the things internally, just on a smaller end that we've been doing is like any birthday or celebration that we're doing now, um, the person that we're celebrating gets to pick a local business that they want to support. Um, and we're contributing to that local business in lieu of, you know, a gathering <laughs> celebration. 
Um, on the bigger end, our for community impact, we have launched a page where we are listing all venues and promoters, touring crews, all of their GoFundMe's. So it's basically a directory where you can go and support your favorite local venue and help support that you know, the hourly workers that are working there who are not able to go to work right now. Um, so that's something that's been really important for us to be doing. And we are also in a position where we were fortunate enough to be able to contribute to help organizations like Backline and Plus One, who are partners with both organizations. Um, Plus One is who we do our nonprofit work with and Backline is an amazing organization that works in the mental health sector for the music industry. Can you talk a, a little bit more about what each of them do? Yeah. So for Backline, if you are in the music industry, it essentially can help you and your family connect to a medical provider um, and just help out at any point in time. And what they've been doing lately is they've been doing a lot of virtual meditations and group work and open discussions for people in the industry to just talk and have resources for mental health, which is just really important right now. Um, Plus One um, is an amazing organization that we've been working with for a while now where they essentially help for primarily touring artists uh, raise money for organizations that they believe in. So they have a relief fund right now that is helping organizations like Backline and Sweet Relief Music Fund. So they're just helping out as much as they can, wherever they can, basically. How do you think about us needing to adapt as we move into the summer months and so much uncertainty around, um, you know, will the office come back? And if so, will it come back at full capacity? And like, how are we thinking about what the world's going to look like on the other side of this? Yeah, I think, I think for me personally, just, going into it knowing that I don't know what that's going to look like um, and just being okay with that. I think accepting that a little bit, but I think just ensuring that everyone feels as comfortable and as supported as they possibly can going into this. I think that's the thing too, is that on top of, you know, trying to maintain work and everything, just also making sure that the individual needs of everyone is being met right now during this time and like what that's going to look like when it's all said and done to just making sure mental health support is there essentially. Do you think that um, the relationship between I'll say businesses and employees and then more specifically light and the team members, um, do you think that that's changed or, or um, how do you think that's changed and how do you think, those sort of workplace relationship and dynamics need to change going forward. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that this whole situation has put a big spotlight on for companies is transparency and whether it's there or not. Um, I have a lot of friends that unfortunately just feel like they're not being led properly with their companies and you know just feeling like there's just no communication and just even connection on a human to human level. And so I think that's one of the things that I really appreciate about our team is that the transparency of everything and the trust that is behind a lot of things. And I think that's just grown even stronger since this has all been going down. Um, You know, just how we've increased how many team meetings we have on a weekly basis and just, 
you know, ensuring that, you know, hey, if you need a day, if you need to take a day for your mental health, like we got you, we have your back. I think there's definitely people out there that work and maybe don't have that type of assurance and support. Mm -hmm. And so you think that those, those needs or those uh, requirements around transparency or, or desires around transparency, something that um, we could sort of carry forward or that businesses in general should consider carrying forward when we get back to a more normal routine, whatever that's going to be. Whatever that looks like, yes. Yeah, I would hope so. And not even so much transparency, but just communication and, you know, understanding that these are humans that, yes, while they work really hard and have a great skill set, like there is so much more to them as people and they need to be supported in that regard. Well, I think that the initiatives and the efforts around keeping our team connected and communicating as well as keeping our dialogue and connection to the outside world and the business community that we're in, I think those have definitely been highlights of this whole sort of unfortunate period and things that um, I think as a, as a group of people who otherwise wouldn't have come together for anything, right? Like, you know, the workplace brings disparate people together. Uh, I think it's something that um, we could all feel good about um, during this thing. And I think in so much as, you know, you're driving a lot of those initiatives, um, I know I appreciate that. So thank you. And uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's a great thing to have the company stand for and to be aligned around. Thank you for saying that. And like I said, like, I'm just excited to hit the ground running whenever we are back because now it's like, oh, wait, I know you guys now. Like, we can do this, this, and this. <laughs> the bar's been raised. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for making time. Thank you. This was fun. Are you in a band now? Are you playing right now? Not playing right now, no. Um, was in a band that we'd been playing together for six years, and that had just come to an end in November. We had our last show. Um, our singer decided to move to LA. He was moving to be closer to his fiance's family, and I mean, we'd, we'd done it for quite some time, and I mean, we had a lot of fun, but it was, I think, we all kind of knew it was coming to a bit of a close. What's the indicator of that? How does a, how does the, how does the group mind get that vibe? Uh, I think it was more about like everyone's priorities shifting a little bit. I think it was more like focusing on ourselves and our families and our personal lives. I think that was like a deciding factor that was was starting to take more of a hold. I think mm -hmm. we all loved the band. We all loved playing music together. We're like all still very close. We have uh, an incessant group text that continues. But um, yeah, I think like shifting priorities was really the the key. I feel like you hear about that more where um, like one band member um, decides they don't want to do it anymore or they can't, you know, it, it, there's sort of the crossroads that gets reached, whether it's it's time to get back in the van again for another six weeks yeah. or it's time to pass the hat so that you can make a record. And there's always one person that ends up saying, I got to tap out like my wife's driving me crazy or I have to, I have to go buy an engagement ring or I need to finish my degree or, 
the, the five years I promised my parents I'd devote to this is coming to an end. <laughs> but it sounds like you guys sort of had a, a, a communal, a communal sense. Yeah, I think it was it was definitely collective. I mean, we had spent so much time together, you know, rehearsals every week and constant contact. I mean, two members were brothers, so they they'd known each other for a lot longer. But um, we'd all we've all been friends for a really long time, and I think we kind of like fed off of each other and sort of knew where people's priorities were at. And like it it was just kind of like you know what, like I think we've we've done that we, what we wanted to do. And we our last show we had a, a record release which kind of felt ironic, but at the same time, it was like we had been working on all of these songs together and we'd been writing and it was like really like the sound that we wanted it to be. And so it actually kind of felt nice to like basically leave a gift of like, look, like this is what we've done. This is what we're really proud of and we want everyone to have it. And so it was just like, we, we called it retirement. <laughs> said that we're going into retirement, but <laughs> yeah, it was great. What is, uh, what is being in a band mean to you at this point in your life in terms of aspiration why do you do it um i mean for me it's always just been a need it's been like i've been playing music since i was really really little like my my folks will tell you that i used to like bang on cardboard boxes with uh hot glue gun sticks and so like it's just kind of always been in something that i needed to do as like a creative expression and so like i'm never going to stop playing music it's just uh whatever form that it takes and however it takes me i think it's just like the next stage of life um and right now like i don't really have easy access to playing drums just because the quarantine and sheltering in place but uh trying to find creative ways to get around that learning a little bit more about music production and digital instruments and that sort of thing and it's been it's been cool to try and like find a new style or find a new voice within a new medium. Do you have any hot glue sticks laying around? <laughs> I do, but they're very small. <laughs> um, has, has your aspiration changed over time? Meaning was there a point where you thought like, I'm going to make it or this is going to be my life and career versus oh. this is going to be my artistic life? Absolutely. I think like, there was a time when, I mean, with uh, our band that just ended the Down and Outlaws, like we, we had a lot of good things going for us at what ended up being different times. And so like we got the major management, we got like interest from record labels, we got like the, you know, the big local festival, we were touring a lot, but they all kind of happened at staggered points. Mm. So it wasn't like when you want all of those things to sync up and be like the crest of the wave, it just kind of came at different points. Um, but I think at that time, like all of us were giving, giving it our all to try and really make a push for it. And like, we were, you know, trying to make the connections. We were trying to like emailing every day. It was like really like owning a business, you know, trying to get after it and trying to make every email and outreach and connection count to like further your career. But I mean, at the same time, like underlying, it was always about, you know, expressing ourselves and making the music that we wanted to make. And it wasn't like, we never really felt like we were tailoring things to be what anybody else wanted. Like we had a really unique writing style where like we did group writing, like we would come in and jam things out and someone would bring like a riff or an idea, or we would just make things up on the spot at the beginning of practice and then really do a labor intensive process of 
all of us trying to put our own ideas and things into it. And it like, it was really hard. We like got into a lot of fights over things, but it honestly, it gave us really unique music. And I think like everybody can feel comfortable with like having their stamp on songs and not being like, Oh yeah. You know, like one person wrote six songs on this, this record and the other people were not really involved in that. It was definitely like a very collaborative process. That's a great attribute that I feel like you don't hear about very often. It's because it's that a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine it, it, and probably difficult to sustain over a long period of time. I mean, that, yeah. You know, yeah, you, you end up killing each other <laughs> or wanting to. <laughs> exactly. We, we got, we got yeah. to those points, but it was always like, you know, we, we found ways to bring ourselves back and the soldier on sort of. <laughs> yeah. Well, a couple of things that you, that you mentioned there that are interesting to me. One is the notion of, uh, all those things, all the elements that go into a successful commercial career mm-hmm. having to happen all at once. So, um, you know, if it were just about who can write great songs, we have many more um, popular hit bands. If it was just about um, who had great management and innovative thinkers around them, we'd have many more hit bands. Um, you know, you can surround yourself with a great team. You can have great material. You can get great bookings. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your point, like if there's not if there's not a significant degree of like all that happening in parallel and and with a, a sort of tip at the end of that spear, um, it just feels like a lot of a lot of not near misses. But um, you can I, I can relate to having been in those situations where you know when one of the good things is happening. I think you know even in the moment like this isn't quite enough. This isn't yeah. not all hitting. Yeah, you definitely kind of feel like certain aspects of things as they're happening and you like, you know in the moment when things are good, but you also know that there's something missing. But it's interesting, like it, the, the question was always like, all right, well, like, if we're going to get management, like when does the record label come in? Like does the record label want us if we don't have, you know, this, that, or the other. And it's always been like the chicken or the egg thing. It's like, well, you can't get a good agent if you don't have the buzz and you can't have the buzz without the bookings, but you can't get the bookings without the agent. <laughs> it's just circular thinking of like, how, how, do I, how do I make myself successful? But Yeah. Did you guys put on your own shows? How did you kickstart that cycle? Yeah, it was a lot of us putting on our own shows and just we played, in the beginning, we played everything. We played everywhere. Like I've, I've played almost every venue in San Francisco. Uh, and I mean, I've been living here for 13, 14 years now. And so like playing in music in that amount of time, you just start forming relationships and like people that you know that are in bands then start to become talent buyers for those venues that you used to play together and then so on and so forth. So I think like for a lot, a lot of it was just relationship building and starting to find people who you were friends with who wanted to book you and like ended up really liking your band. Like so often we would find people at the end of our shows being like, wow, you guys are really good. And it's like, yeah, you know, like if, if you just tell somebody that you're in a band, they kind of roll your eyes and then they, they see you. And then it's a, a, that progresses like progresses that to the next level of, uh, Oh, well it's actually a band. It's like a real band. So. Isn't it funny when you go see a local band or you go see even a even an opening act that you haven't heard of or a support act that you haven't heard of and they're actually good? It's yeah. there is always that feeling of surprise, right? Because like the barrier to entry is perceived as being low, 
Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you actually try to do it, yeah, you could get a bunch of people in a basement and yeah. you could write some songs, but to actually get a polished presentation where there's arrangements and maybe vocal parts. And I, you know, yeah. I think people, people forget that there is, um, it's not just artistry. There's a lot of craft that goes into actually being a good thing. Yeah. A good art. Definitely. I think it's, it's definitely a, an interesting skill. Like we progressed over many years of learning about ourselves and about each other and like how we write. And I think towards the end, we really ended up finding like what the voice that we wanted to speak from, but it took a long time. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting. Like I've, I've definitely gone to shows and been really surprised at, you know, opening acts and wanting to, it's not like I'm going into things, not with an open mind, but, uh, someone once told us that we we were like trying to shoot for bigger opening acts and someone said, well, you don't want to be a speed bump band. And I'd never heard that term before, which is basically like you're the opener for the, the massive headliners. It was like, so, you know, if we went on tour with the stones It'd be like, well, you're the speed bump band. You're the band that everyone is going to wait until the end for. Like, no one's going to care about you. They just want to get over you to get to the band that they actually came to see. Did, did you use that example because I've told you my Rolling Stone story? If not, no. I, I'm, I'm ready for it. <laughs> I mean, you just described the exact experience I had the first time I saw the Rolling Stones. So, um, the Stones were sort of my band when I was a little kid. Like I, I literally got turned on to the Stones when, when I was far too young to be into the Rolling Stones. So they, they were always my band. Mm-hmm. And I just missed them age-wise on their 1981 tour. And so, and then they didn't work really throughout the 80s. They put out a couple of records, but they didn't tour. So when they came around in 89, like I was, that was, you know, I was the right age and I was ready to go. And I went to go see the Stones. And the opening act was Living Color. And I liked Living Color at the time. Like, I actually really liked them. I had the record. Yeah. I, you know, they, they, were, they were a great band. And I was so angry. There was never a band I liked less than the 45 minutes that Living Color was on stage that yeah. day. I remember thinking, you are the last thing standing between me <laughs> and the Rolling Stones. Yep. And I don't think I've ever really... Um, proactively listen to living colors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a real thing. I've, I've experienced it myself. And like, I think like that little piece of wisdom was definitely an interesting one because like, I mean, I've gone to shows and been really surprised or like gone to big shows where I'm only looking forward to the headliner. And then like, I always try and listen to things with an open mind for sure. But like, yeah. There are definitely shows where you're like, I don't care. Like, I'm only here for one band. I don't care about anything else. <laughs> like, yeah. what time do they go on? I'm going to show up 15 minutes after. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I actually, I'm, I'm very guilty of that. Like, if I'm left to my own devices, I show up for what I bought the ticket for. Yeah. I'll go earlier if somebody wants to, but I usually have to be kind of cajoled. So, mm-hmm. um, and it's, I, I'm not proud of that attribute. Um, and I find it gets sharper. It gets, it, it becomes a more sharpened attribute the older I get some combination of like how I want to spend my time versus, um, you know, just the concert experience of like, I want the thing. I, want. I think so, at this point, everybody's going to be going for the opening bands now. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. We will, uh, we'll have a lot more tolerance for that experience. A lot more yeah. need for that. Experience. Um, so you came to San Francisco, you said about 13 years ago, mm-hmm. where from, uh, Santa Barbara, Santa Barbara. And were you playing down there? 
I was, yeah. So when I was in high school, I started playing with uh, a group of guys that I'd met. I was working at a guitar store at the time, and I met these two guys. One, the kid was taking guitar lessons uh, at the shop, and that was how I met him. And he like gave me his demo at the time and his drummer was really bad and so i was like i think we can do better than this like i would love to play with you like your your writing is amazing and i want to like help basically but also jealously like i thought like i could be a good addition to the band and so we were doing really well and like playing out a lot when i first moved up here and i was actually like for the first probably six months i was still going back down to play shows with them and then eventually the strangers got too much and like ended up ending that band. And, but both of those, the two guys that I played with actually went on to be really successful. Um, the lead singer and guitar player went on to form a band called Beware of Darkness that has done some success. And then the bass player is now playing for uh, Ghost Main. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. So, yeah, so let, then, let me let me uh, keep let me keep winding back. Um, are, were you raised in Santa Barbara? Where are you from originally? Uh, I was born in LA and then uh, raised in Santa Barbara. Gotcha. Yeah. And um, when did you when did you leave LA for Santa Barbara? Uh, it was after the Northridge earthquake, so it was like '94. Um, oh, okay. So I did like elementary school and high school all in Santa Barbara. Gotcha. And um, was it was it a direct result of the earthquake? Was it was your family just like let's get the hell away from this? Yeah, it kind of destroyed our house, and they didn't really want to live anywhere near sort of the epicenter of that anymore. And so they yeah. kind of like brought us up there. And then I decided to move directly to a place where there's a ton of earthquakes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll come back to that in a second. Um, the uh, it's interesting about Northridge because I feel like it's like the forgotten incident but people who lived through it um i've talked to a few people actually in the last few months who um reminded me like it was it was not a small event it was it was it was pretty hardcore um in a major american city and i don't know why i mean i i remember it obviously but it it had a very big impact on the people that were touched by it and i don't Mm -hmm. i just feel like we don't remember it as much as even like the bay area earthquake or other events and i do you have any thoughts on that like i don't really know i mean maybe it's just because it's not in a major metropolitan area it's like more away from the spotlight that is los angeles but i mean it was definitely like a big incident and like drove us to get away from it but yeah i think like i i'm still thinking i always think about it like the the earthquake thing was stuck with me for a long time because i was very little and it was traumatizing as a kid so i always think about it and like looking back at photos of like what it did to our house, just like destroyed, like busted up all the windows. And it was, it was intense. Wow. Were you home? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember it? Yeah, I remember it. Um, I mean, very vaguely, I was really young, Mm -hmm. but I definitely remember it. Um, Yeah. And when you guys were in LA, what were your parents doing? Um, My dad at the time as well still is, is a, supervisor for a music supervisor for film and television so that was his main gig at the time and my mom was taking care of me and i have a brother older brother and sister um so he was uh i mean he he had started working as a music supervisor basically when i was born so 1989 was his first film which was the terminator 
Nice. Yeah. So he got, he got, he started small. He started small. Um, I've, I've talked to him at length about this. Like it was an interesting transition for him because he was a, a, a manager for a long time. He managed uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Slaughter. And it, like the, the longest running one was Kansas. Uh, and I think he had sort of just made a name for himself with those artists and sort of started working with people in LA a little bit and had friends in film and television. And the story went that he, people when they wanted to license songs for movies and TV at the time, it was a really, really difficult process because directors couldn't talk to managers or couldn't talk to artists. Like nobody really understood the language that each other was speaking. So at one point he got a call from James Cameron and there was like, we need someone who can talk to these people, like someone who understands both sides of like deal making for music and some of the ins and outs of television and that was really where that started for him and yeah i mean it's kind of history from there he ended up working on uh every oliver stone movie that's happened and he's had a really long amazing career which has been cool to watch and be a part of that that was where a lot of my music influence came from uh, yeah, I, I I wanted to ask you about that. So you grew up in a home where music was present? Yeah, pretty much all the time. I mean, he, as a kid, like had me organize his CDs and record collections that he would have as references. And he was a musician in college as well. Like He was a lead singer in a band called the One-Eyed Jacks. <laughs> uh, that was mostly like northeastern regions so like he went to school in chicago and was from jersey so a lot of that territory but um yeah i mean i was just around music a lot as a kid and one of the one of the big movies that he worked on that i think like had a huge effect on my personal influence was uh the doors so he was working he was in touch with all the management for the doors catalog and that was a lot of the stuff that was lying around and just playing around our house at the time. That's really an interesting connection because uh, the Doors first manager also managed CSN for a period, uh, Bill Siddons. So I'm sure your dad had a had a relationship or a history with him that maybe, maybe that maybe that helped facilitate a lot of the. Yeah, I'm sure that's what happened. I, I I know he has a close relationship with the the managers of their catalog. Okay, so so then bring me back up to uh, San Francisco. Why San Fran? How did that happen? What you know? What what brought you to the Bay Area? Uh, I had visited uh, SF as a kid and just kind of fell in love with the architecture and the art scene. And I knew that there was music coming out of San Francisco at the time. Like, I mean, I was a big fan of AFI and Green Day, and those were Bay Area punk bands that I listened to. And so I kind of wanted to just position myself in that environment and so that was one of the places that I picked to go to college and ended up deciding to plant roots here and as soon as I started school I was like leaving one band and wanted to get into another pretty pretty soon after that and so ended up just finding some guys uh Kyle actually who works with us now I met him in college and he and I started playing together and have known each other's since I moved here, basically, and I've been playing wow. together for that long. So we've had two different bands together, almost three. I mean, ideas of a third. <laughs> <laughs> almost three. I like that. Yeah. Uh, is there still, like, is there at all any type of a rock-based local-level music scene in the Bay Area? Uh, it's been in flux, honestly, for the last few years. Um, 
the biggest resurgence of things that we saw as a band was lo-fi was a big big genre lo-fi and like what people are calling like chamber pop like soaked in reverb so there's there's a big scene for that sort of thing and then there was a big like sort of um psychedelic revival that happened um which some of our friends are still still doing that sort that sort of thing but it was pretty heavy maybe five years ago four years ago um but when kyle and i first started playing together we were playing like sort of grunge inspired both of us were really into Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and those things and so like there was definitely not a scene for that yeah <laughs> we, were, we were forcing people to listen to the music that we listened to um but we we definitely found an audience uh with Down and Outlaws because I felt like there was a gap and nobody was really playing like fast rock and roll. It was very like, you know, lo-fi inspired or psychedelic. And I think like there, that was missing here mm-hmm. where it might've been present in other places. Like people, you know, were hitting us up on social medias and being like, Oh, you know, come to Illinois, come to New York, come to these places because they found us and we just hadn't made our way out there yet. And so I think yeah. like in San Francisco, the scene, fluctuates pretty rapidly and i think it's kind of hard for up-and-coming musicians to find places to play here i mean we've lost a lot of really good small-time venues over the last two years places that like i cut my teeth at like uh i mean we just lost the hemlock last year which was a huge like rock and roll scene for you know djs for bands or like up-and-coming people like i think that was that was a big loss at least for me and that's that's related just to the pace of the change in the Bay Area and the and the pressure on real estate and things of that nature. Yeah, definitely, and like skyrocketing rents and people wanting to develop. Um, it's it, yeah, it's been tough. I think like yeah. that and like the the scene in general, I think is is kind of waning, which is unfortunate. And is that you think a function of um, if you're trying to make a living in the arts, you're not like you're moving further out into the East Bay or you're, you know, it's just, you can't afford to be there. Potentially. Yeah. I think that that could be the case. And I think it's um, just like maybe the lack of a nurturing environment for people. Like I think it might be harder for people to be vulnerable in spaces where, I mean, people like the, the venues that are buying talent are pretty skeptical they, they, they ask a lot. And so those smaller venues that kind of let you try things out are going away just because of rent and development and things like that. So people aren't really able to experiment as much, I don't feel. Yeah, that seems like that becomes self-fulfilling pretty quickly. Very yeah. restricting. Yeah. And so you worked on the business side of music as well. Like you, uh, you put on shows or you book shows. Can you, what were you doing with, uh, with uh, Hard Rock? Yeah, so when I first moved here, um, I got introduced to a family friend and he was doing live music consulting. And so he had a business where he was working with large amphitheaters in the cities and trying to figure out how he could do um, like some sort of speculative work for them and like sort of impact of if, you know, this sort of event happened in this space, what would happen? But one of the other clients that he had was Hard Rock from an old friend connection that he had. And what they did was, is they paired 
with local radio stations to do giveaways, do um, sort of like radio promotions for tickets mm-hmm. and they wanted to link hard rock directly. And so when I started working with him, he just basically gave me that business. And so at like 19 years old, I was cold calling managers and trying to set up things because it was like, we would be given sort of a, a list of, you know, artists that were coming into the areas based on tours and routing and things like that. And be like, all right, well, this is the plan that we have for them. We need you to reach out and find out like if they're open to it, like what, you know, a contract might look like with them and that sort of thing. It was very interesting. Uh, yeah, I booked a bunch of different bands like Paramore and Sarah Bareilles. And then one of the ones that stuck out to me was uh, the Bacon Brothers. Yeah, sure. Uh, they, they had a band that was primarily Kevin's brother was like the lead singer and Kevin just sort of played with him. But I booked them for uh, the City, City Walk Hard Rock in LA at Universal Studios. And I went and got there and did the whole thing and like got there and uh, their management decided that I didn't do a few things correctly uh, according to their writer and so screamed at me for about 15 minutes because I had messed something up and my, my dad came to that with me. He's like, Oh, I think like that's kind of a rite of passage for you to be screamed at by a manager in the music industry. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I think a couple of things that, that, that strike me about that. First of all, you've become uh, my sixth degree of Kevin Bacon story. So thank oh, you. Good. <laughs> I've been waiting for that. <laughs> but the, uh, the other is I think it starts to approach maybe the answer to my next question, which is, you make your living in another creative field, but not in the business side of music per se. You know, mm-hmm. like if, if, if your story had simply stopped with um, or started with, I booked shows and put on events around hard rock and then I started booking clubs and then I started producing and now I, I run a festival like that. Mm-hmm. I would have, that would have been a very sort of clear, logical um, career trajectory. I would, I would understand. Yeah. Um, what what accounts for you sort of not making your professional life on the business side of music and being in this other creative? Well, I, like, I think with music actually sort of influenced my creative entrance into this business because like in high school, I basically looked over someone's shoulder while they were using Photoshop to make posters for bands. Mm-hmm. And I had him teach me how to do it because I was starting to play in more bands and uh, we needed merch. We needed promotional material. We needed logos, all of this sort of thing. And so like that really started my design career and my interest in doing graphic design for anything. Primarily I was doing, you know, poster work, but um, I think it's always been a really fine line for me and it's really difficult. It's a weird duality of like wanting to be involved in music in the business side of it. And then also wanting to do art as well as like the music side of art, because I've always loved it. Like gig posters were how I started and how I want to continue. Like I, I find them just beautiful and like, you know, I think that's a really big part of music in general and people that hang, you know, Fillmore posters, um, on their walls all the time. Like I had friends that did that all throughout college. And I, I think like that was really a hard decision for me of taking my career in one direct direction or another. And I know like my dad wanted to keep me out of the music industry and he tried really, really hard, but could, <laughs> couldn't do it. But um, I think like I've always 
I've always been fascinated with art as well. And I think like neither of those aspects of my life are ever going to leave, but I think for the time being, I'm really enjoying the design aspect. Yeah. I think the, um, the gig poster uh, arena is an interesting one to talk about for a minute, because I think there's, there's not a lot of other areas where, um, you know, we'll talk just about music artists for a minute Mm -hmm. where they would bring in another creative entity and really let them do their thing per se. Like, and, you know, I know I realize a lot of it was maybe venue or promoter driven, but even so, like, you know, I look at a band like Wilco that has really a gig show poster for, for every, they have a gig poster for every show. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know they sell them at the venue. They sell them through their website. It's a big part of like the fan experience. If you're, if you're a fan of that band, and I'm sure there's lots of other examples. I feel like there's not a lot of other aspects of an artist's presentation that I can think of where they just bring in a creative equal to do their thing. Yeah. And so it's a it's an interesting on the sort of Venn diagram. It's it's interesting how it's it's a it's a commercial art. It's a fine art. Um, there's clearly a collectible market. It's part of the fan experience. It's a really unique place in the music business. Yeah, absolutely. And like a lot of people have made significant names for themselves just doing that sort of work. Like one of my favorite poster artists uh, who is Bay Area centered for a long time, uh, but I think he just moved down to LA, um, Zoltron. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he he does like these incredible sort of collage looking illustrations and he was definitely a big influence for me in a lot of different design aspects like he was street artist for a long time and then started moving more into poster art and he's just been very very active and it's been really cool to watch what he does but he is also exists completely separately from music and does the crossover and i feel like what happens a lot of the time at these either poster art or like tour art for bands is that they sort of don't give any guidance. They let someone do what they do. Like I've definitely had that where I've been given a prompt of don't use anything that relates to the band name. Like just anything else basically goes and they want you to just do what you do. Like don't be literal. Don't take too much. Yeah, don't be literal. But I think there's definitely like a mutual respect of like we're doing we're doing this music and I, I'm, I'm always inspired by music, especially when it comes to art and like that can definitely be channeled. And so I feel like there's a definitely uh, this eye to eye sort of like, all right, we did this. Now you go do your thing. When you were in the Bay area um, or when you first got there, um, was Rex Ray still working? Did you know Rex? I don't think so. No. So Rex was a, um, a, an artist and a designer who um, I worked with a long time ago. He, um, he did a lot of work um, with Bowie. He did some package design, but he also did a lot of uh, sort of poster art, lithographs, mm-hmm. um, really amazing, interesting stuff. But he did a lot of work uh, for the film work um, oh, yeah. in the maybe, you know, the, the, the new incarnation of the film work in the maybe late 90s, early 2000s, whenever it was that brand started to come back. Yeah. And, um, but similar to what you were saying before, he also, he was, you know, he had other aspects of his commercial artistry. He did surface pattern design. I think he had like a, a they were either carpets or drapes, like actually like some like, you know, surface pattern design in like home furnishing. Type oh my gosh. Arenas. Yeah. Really interesting stuff. Really super interesting. 
stuff, digital manipulation, not like pen and drum. So mm -hmm. all, all digital. Um, but really amazing work. Yeah. I thought maybe your time overlap. As you're as you're thinking less and less about a career as a professional musician as sort of the primary way to pay the rent, mm -hmm. um, you move into the sort of commercial art realm. Um, can you talk about that evolution and how like has that always been how you've paid the rent? Have you always been um, a designer? Uh, no, I've not always been a designer. I mean, on, on a, on a one hand, yes, I have. I think like it, it has definitely been a side hustle for many, many years um, that sometimes can borderline main hustle, but there's definitely been a lot of other ways that I've tried to make, make ends meet as far as like allowing the bands to happen. So I, you know, bartended, worked at restaurants for a long time just to allow for a flexible schedule. Like yeah. some, some place that would say like, all right, well, I have to go on tour for two weeks, three weeks. Uh, is it cool if I still come back and work for you? And like having those relationships, like that was definitely important, but I've, I've had design in my back pocket since high school, just because it was something that I needed to do for bands. I was like the only guy that wanted to, to focus on that. And so I think over time it became something that I really appreciated and found a lot more joy in um, like the quest to like be on the cutting edge and to do something that's unique and do something that is like uh, truly me, I think. So I, I got more into uh, doing branding work and finding like identities for people. And that was, that was something that I think like really opened a lot of doors for me because it, it was allowing me to view an entire entity creatively and to really like <laughs> dissect it and figure out exactly the visual story of it. And I, that was like a turning point for me where I, I really found that fascinating and it made me want to explore that more much like, I mean, with music, you want to kind of find all of the edges and I wanted to do that with design as well. And so it, it took me to a lot of different places like, doing illustration work for friends or like little logos here and there. It's, it's, it's definitely been cool to like, I think one of my favorite parts of design is the high turnover to like completing a project and to get a new pitch of something completely different. And so you have to adapt and you have to figure out what the next style is and like how you're visualizing something. I think that is like one of the biggest drivers for me is the, the constant change and the constant like, adapting and reimagining and, and taking someone's vision that they have and using a prompt and helping them see it to the end or like giving them what's it, the picture that's in their head, giving that to them. Yeah. You know, there's, there's something, uh, I don't know if this is too much of a stretch, but I'll, I'll run it past you. Um, I was reading an interview um, with your dad. He was talking about a couple things, but one was, um, choosing music for a production and then the conversation sort of pivoted into like what you're listening to now, what, what you get off on now. Mm -hmm. And the thought I had was, you know, I, I, I was just doing some back of the napkin math. I don't know how old he is, but I, my thinking at the time was, Oh, this guy's got really fresh musical taste. Like this is clearly his job is to stay on top of music. Um, but he's not speaking about it. Like it's a job. Like he'd be, mm -hmm. he'd be finding, you know, he'd be looking for new kicks musically, regardless of whatever his job was. And that struck with that stuck with me. 
And then you basically just said the same thing in the context <laughs> of your work, um, yep. that one of the things you like about it is that sort of it's changing, the, you know, what's, what's commercially viable changes, what's, what stylistically is in changes. And like, you know, you get to be a student while also practicing your craft. That, that's sort of the, that's how that struck, both of those concepts struck me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, m my dad and I have constantly shared music with each other. Like, that was definitely a thing of, like, when he used to have to drive me to school, it would be like, you know, I I've got these new CDs, like, what do you think? Or, like, he'll he'll send me download links that his friends give him still, and I'll do the same thing of, like, oh, I, you know, found this new artist that I'm really liking, like, you should check them out. And it's just a constant, like, give and take of this sort of creative swapping of exactly like learning about new things and trying to find just the the quest for for new <laughs> yeah yeah how do you work um on the design side do you do you freehand draw on a tablet do you um like what's a little can you talk a little bit about your methodology sure um i think what i've always been comfortable with is just pen and paper or a pencil and oh, paper really? that's like a really a really good starting point for a lot of things but i mean as uh technology is kind of adapted like i have a, an ipad and uh you know apple pencil whatever to to do sketching now and i it took me a long time to like kind of get into the the swing of that because it was very new and i was so used to you know tracing paper and light tables and that sort of thing and like I now find how big of a tool it is. It is definitely changed a lot of my design process in that way where I can do everything in layers from sketching to inking all on one device where before it was like, you know, sketch it on paper, scan it, put it into a digital format and then ink it there. I think this is a simplified way of that process. But at the same time, like you still can't beat sort of the physical aspect of pencil and paper there's some sort of reactive element to that that you just can't get digitally, no matter yeah. how many times you can try it. Like there, there are, you know, screen protectors that are supposedly feel like paper, but I mean, it's, it's definitely a very tactile thing to just have, you know, pencil and paper. So I think like, I'm still always going to be comfortable with starting there and yeah. Moving up into the next levels, but I think that's that's where the di the the process into digital starts for me. It's it's easy to just sketch things out. Yeah, it sounds very similar to um, sort of the the bias that some people have around you know physical music or vinyl versus digital. Just in terms of there's a physics to it, mm -hmm. and the physics impacts the experience. There's you know you talked about the feel of the screen protector versus paper. Mm -hmm. or um, you know a needle on a groove deciphering sound waves like there's a there's yeah. a there's a distinct thing happening there that um even if you take away the qualitative judgment of which is better they are fundamentally different yeah and so you'll have a preference and it's and it's totally a physical experience in both ways like you know, there's a there's a different experience between pushing a play button and uh, setting a needle on a record. Like it's very very different, especially in the way that you hear those things. So, yeah, the act of getting up every twenty minutes to flip the record. Yeah, um, or or three minutes if you're playing forty fives. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, to, uh, just a couple of other gearhead questions. What um, 
if you're if you're working on an iPad, like what's your what's your suite? What um you know what's the software you're using? You mentioned on the hardware side, it's simply the tablet and the Apple Pen. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you working in? What environment are you in? Um, it's a, an application called Procreate. That's primarily the one that I use. Um, it was one of the first ones I think outside of some of the like Apple built-in ones that came on the market that really like it was geared specifically for people who wanted to go from the tablet to uh, the computer elements of it because it seamlessly integrated layers and they're definitely like on on the cutting edge of like adapting it to be easy for designers to not only like yeah. create full projects within it and not need to go anywhere near a computer. Um, it's getting to that level, but also just enabling you to have all the tools that you need in order to go from the tablet to the computer and create like full vectorized big posters or whatever you need. Like some of the stuff that I've been working on now, uh, the social media stuff that we have been doing has been these sort of doodles, these drawings over some of our, our venue partners. And I'm doing almost all of that just onto the iPad it from sketch to inking to everything like that. And so that has been a huge tool. So you can end up with your finished product without ever going to a, um, to a computer. Yeah, you can, if you spend enough time with it, it, it allows you to do everything you need basically like from a Photoshop point of view. like, you can do a lot of that in, in just the tablet, but I, I always just go in and clean things up on a bigger screen and it makes it easier to manipulate that way. But, um, it's, it's pretty, pretty powerful and it's been cool. Um, I, I just like, there's so many like free form artists or like uh, open source artists that are adding new things of like different brushes and different textures and things. So it, you can make full works of art just in procreate. And a lot of people do. Uh, that's interesting. So when you move your when you move um, a project from the iPad to um, to a, a full computer, mm-hmm. um, what's the file format that Procreate's working in? Like, is it a, is it a native? Is it a proprietary file format, or like how do you get it into Photoshop? Uh, they have they export as Photoshop files, so they export oh, full layers. Yeah, and, and it's really it's really great and makes it super easy because everything that you were just working with, like physically in the in the application, is now in a full powered Photoshop. So yeah, that's it, amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm 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 glad that it exists because it was definitely like uh, it was a bit of a learning curve to get into it because there's a lot of little nuances and trying to figure out exactly how to work within it and took some time but it, it definitely is worth the payoff yeah and like a lot of the tools on the creative side whether it's you know on the design side or even you know on the music production side they they all have that same software curse which is you know if it can be thrown in there it gets thrown in there so yeah. the usability definitely uh it gets tough over time Every, everything tries to be the all-in-one suite yeah and it's hard because then you have to find all those things and try and learn a million different tools and yeah a lot but so tell me about um i'm sorry to ping pong between uh different aspects of your life but um i i I really need you to tell me about um the work you did for californication especially because i'm a massive alice cooper head from a long time ago so that uh when you told me you worked on that that was like and what a great song man what oh yeah oh it's pretty funny so um Actually, my, my dad emailed me a photo today of my audition photo. So basically, um, 
a longtime family friend of his uh, is Jay Ferguson, who was in Jojo Gun and he was in the band Spirit. Gotcha. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. So he's a keyboardist and just all around incredible musician. Um, and he lived right down the street from us. And so they were, you know, longtime friends. And he had his own studio at his house. And his primary work at the time, not only just recording bands and having, you know, studio was doing score work and doing stuff for film and television as well. And so he was working on Californication and needed musicians to make this sort of teenage band come to life. And so he asked me, I'd, I'd done like, I was a studio assistant for him. I really wanted to learn how a recording studio worked. And so since I was up the street, I was, you know, in high school and wanted a summer job at one point. And so he just had me wrap cables and that sort of thing. And I think at the time he asked if I wanted to do it, um, if I could learn these two songs. So we needed uh, Cheap Trick and then The Only Women Bleed by Alice Cooper. And so I learned those two songs and I played guitar, bass, and drums, and sang backup vocals for them for all, all those songs. And Jay played the piano parts. And uh, then once that was all finished, it was great. Like, we sent them off. Uh, and they needed a bass player for the little girl's band in one of the, the scenes. And so I was like, well, I mean, they're supposed to be 12, but we'll just send them a photo of John and see if they, they go for it. And they ended up doing it. And so I went down to, to Venice and filmed at me playing the song that I had just recorded for the show. It was pretty funny. That's amazing, man. So you played, you played uh, the majority of the parts on the track. Yeah. That's heavy duty, man. That's impressive. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. I, I, like, I, drums was my first instrument. I'd, I'd played that since I started playing in second grade um, because my parents wouldn't let me have a full drum set until I, I learned how to play snare drum in the, the school band. And so I, did that and then they finally let me do it and then after that it just sort of snowballed because i wanted to be in a band so badly as a kid that i would just learn any instrument that i could in order to do it so i like half taught myself how to play guitar and then started taking lessons and then from there I went bass and then i was working in a guitar shop so i had all access to all these stringed instruments around me and so i think that just kind of like came through in a lot of different ways and uh yeah for the californication thing i was like all right well yeah we don't need to hire anybody else i'll just do all of it and then jay played the the piano parts for it um which is great do you not play piano i do not i've tried so many times i can't read music it just does not compute with me i've always been like a rhythmic person and i think most of it just comes from playing for feel yeah. And so I think like reading sheet music was really, really difficult. But um, luckily, Jay is an also all around talented musician. So he's able to do that as well. <laughs> when I was actually recording with that band I was telling you about in high school, uh, we recorded three or four songs with him at his studio. And while we were just hanging out, like during a break or something like that, uh, our bass player found a CD laying around that just said office theme. And it was this like, wait, you did the theme for the office? He's like, oh yeah, I did that like a little while ago. It, it, I think the show had just started. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And so it was pretty funny to be in that studio of where, where the office theme came from. I'll tell you what, you guys that can play multiple instruments uh, with, a, with the proficiency level to be able to record something that was used in a, a television production drive me insane. Um, I've, I've played <laughs> piano since I was about five years old. And I struggle just to suck. Um, 
but I, you know, I was in a band in high school with a guy who, um, our guitar player, you know, it was one thing that he could play guitar. And then of course he could pick up the bass. Um, he took piano lessons as a kid so he could play piano, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm never going to forget the day he came to practice with a saxophone <laughs> and then sat at the drums. And I was like, this is hopeless. Like, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, it's amazing. And my, my, uh, my own son is, uh, he plays piano and now he plays bass. He plays trombone. Um, and it's the same thing. Like it, it blows my mind that some people just have that facility, um, with music and with instruments. And so, yeah. um, I'm glad that you can't read music because at least <laughs> it's one thing that you can't do, <laughs> but it's incredibly, incredibly impressive. Um, do you find that you can pick up an instrument and get it to make sound? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, like I have never made the crossover into like woodwinds or brass or anything like that. Um, I've always been fascinated by it, but, uh, yeah, I think for the most part, like I have, I've plucked around on enough things to sort of like make, make enough sounds to make it work. But I think like the baseline being percussion uh, for me, I think was very helpful because most of the times, like, like even when I talk to Kyle about, you know, playing guitar, uh, since he's a guitar player, it's, he, he tells me that I play guitar like a drummer. Like I play it rhythm, rhythmically more than anything else. And so I think that's like been an overarching thing for me in music is like, I am gravitating towards music with like heavy grooves and very rhythmic things like, I don't know. I think like that has always been a big element for me in music making and music listening is like beats and uh, just rhythmic, rhythmic sounds. Yeah. Did you, uh, have you played any other instruments on stage or, or, or when you're performing, you're always a drummer? No, no, I've, I've done just about everything. Um, I was a lead singer in a band for a long time. Um, I played bass in a band briefly. I have never actually played guitar on stage with a band but um i played in a bluegrass band for three or four years and i played banjo and mandolin on stage and those are very very difficult instruments and can be extremely annoying if you're not good at them so i'm sure yeah, it's I'm- funny you bring up that i was going to say to you the one the one stringed instrument that i often find is the it's the barrier one is the banjo for people like especially oh, yeah. if you're going to play it correctly you could pick it up and, and approach it like a guitar but if you're going to play it correctly it's its, its own thing yeah it- it is it is super annoying if you're not good at it, and I'm not good at it. <laughs> but, um, did you have yeah. to get union cards to uh, be on the TV show? Uh, yes, I did. Um, but I had I'd also done background work and acting myself uh, throughout my life in really random ways. Uh, so I, I did that as well, yeah. Um, when I was a baby, I was a, a In the Doors movie as well. Uh, I was a crying baby on an airplane. Oh, I have to go back and find you. <laughs> yeah, I think there's actually a scene in like the the uh, the DVD extras of me and Val Kilmer making faces at me, but I'm just sobbing my head off because they took me away from my mom. Yeah, and because I'm sure Val Kilmer was uh, in in uh, you know known for his method acting, I'm sure he was the Lizard King while he was playing with the child. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, yeah. um, thank you. Thank you for making time to do this. It was, it was super fun to talk to you. And I liked, uh, I loved hearing your story and, and, uh, 
thanks for sharing. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm so glad that we got to do this. I, I always love talking to you. And so this is nice to have a dedicated block. Thank you so much to Caitlin Flood and John Carr. All right, you two, get back to work. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Remember that Spotlight On is available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all those other great podcast outlets. As always, this episode has been produced and edited by Craig Snyder. Thank you once again to Ant Taylor and the entire crew at Light. If you happen to be interested in what we're up to, visit us at light.com. That's L-Y-T-E dot com. And please keep your feedback coming. Send it to me directly at LP at light dot com. Please share this episode with a friend and leave your feedback on your podcast platform of choice. That helps us so much more than you know. Thank you so much. Be safe. And as always, please stay in touch.